The following is an exclusive presentation of 680 WPTF and Applied Vision Works. This is the Building a Leadership Culture podcast, hosted by President of Applied Vision Works, Don Hadley. An in-depth look at how Don and his team help businesses reach their long-term goals. Here's the host of the Building a Leadership podcast, Don Hadley. Well, this is Don Hadley with Applied Vision Works. We're doing the Building a Leadership Culture podcast. And on this podcast, we have someone that is a very successful business person. I also consider him a very good friend, as well as someone that's a great family man. And that is Pete Jernigan. He owns a company called Pete Jernigan Holdings. And a few short months, he'll be coming out with a book. And the book will be basically a diary about thirsty horses. It's how to disrupt things, but do them in a positive way that creates wealth, but not just financial wealth, but wealth in terms of capabilities, skills, intellectual capital, emotional capital. His evidence or proof of that, he actually built a business over a number of years and sold it for $55 million. Uh, He also is probably one of the most self-aware, mature people I know and has spent a number of years psychologically studying um, himself and other people and what makes people great people and successful in life. So Pete, welcome to the podcast. Glad to have you on. Thank you, Don. Glad to be here. So out of curiosity, this this book, and we've been talking about it for a long time and you're getting close to putting this out what got you to want to write the book what was your motivation so i suppose my claim to fame is founding tower engineering professionals which has about 700 employees currently and i founded it out of my kitchen with a $15,000 second mortgage. And when I sold it for, as you mentioned, $55 million, the, the, the company had zero debt. It, we had no line of credit, no loans, nothing. Everything was paid for. We even owned 24 business properties, which were paid for. So after I sold controlling interest to the private equity group, one thing led to another and I left the company and I decided I wanted to write a book to tell the story because what I discovered was that even though it's not that unique to, to, to build a successful company and sell it for quite a bit of money, I have discovered that it is very rare to do it with zero debt. So, and I also discovered, especially through the process of working with private equity, that the way I built the company, the way I ran the company, culture of the company and the organization of the company was all extremely rare. So I decided I wanted to write a book about it to tell the story. Well, it's almost like you've lived the American dream. You hear about this, but you actually don't see it that often. And it's a uh, fascinating story, I think, that you've got. I remember you've talked with me a lot about a formula that you have for success about winning. And I know you've talked with the formula doesn't apply to just business, but also personal life. So maybe you could just share with us a little bit about what is winning? What's the formula? What's kind of the process you use? Yeah, I like the word process. I'm big on process. So I create processes for things that I want done. I create processes for results. So winning is, uh, I like to use synonyms to help flesh out words. So winning is success. Winning is achieving the desired results. And um, the process for winning, you first decide the result you want to achieve. For example, if it's a basketball game, the result you want is to score more points than the bad guys. Then once you decide on the result you want to achieve, then you have to create a plan to obtain the result. And then once you create the plan, then you have to uh, simply execute the plan, show up and do it. And and throughout through the process of creating the plan, the first thing you need to do is you need to stage the situation. And I learned that when I was uh, I was battling cancer, and I got the word stage. That's the word that doctors use when they decide 
the situation with the cancer, how big the tumor is, what's its aggressiveness, this and that, the other. And they would use the term, we're staging the cancer. Interesting. So I thought that term worked very well for everything I had done with my businesses and so on that had been successful. I always staged the problem. And then once you stage the problem, you design the solution. And then once you design the solution, you have to decide uh, if you want, you have enough want to to execute the solution. For example, when I founded my company, one of the things I had to do, my main company, claim to fame, so to speak, I had to climb cell towers. So I had to decide, do I want to risk my life to build this company? Do I want to risk my life to get the result I want, which is wealth? And that's the kind of thing you have to decide. And if you say, yeah, I'm willing to do that, then you proceed with the plan. If you say, no, I'm not willing to do that, then you alter the plan. You can say, well, I still want to sell tower company, but maybe I can hire somebody else to do the climb. And that'll cut into my profits and so on and so forth and take some of the control away from me, but I have to adjust for that. So that's what I mean by deciding if you have the want to, to execute the plan. If you do, do it. If you don't, iterate, change the plan, and then go from there. So to say it back to you, I think this is something interesting. It's, you know, you kind of have three steps. Choose the result or the goal, put a plan together and execute it. But it's interesting because I don't hear very often that when you talk about the result, you do have to choose getting that result. I hear a lot of people say, I want a million dollars. I want to travel to Paris. But what so happens is 10 years later, they're saying the same thing, but they haven't really made the choice or chosen to achieve that. And that sounds unique about the way you're saying it that I don't hear often. I think the unique thing is the people, generally what I have found is the people aren't willing to do the hard thing. So for example, somebody will say, and let me use real simple terms here. Somebody will say, I want to be able to bench press 300 pounds. Mm -hmm. Well, to bench press 300 pounds, you stage the problem. Well, the problem is I can only bench press 100 or whatever. Then you come out with your plan. Well, my plan is I need to go to the gym every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for six months and follow this weightlifting routine. Well, as soon as it gets hard, they stop. Mm -hmm. So there's a gap between what they say they want to do and what they're willing to do to get there. Interesting. That's what I find a lot of times when you hear people say, I want to be a millionaire, but are they willing to do the hard thing? Mm -hmm. For example, with me, the first thing I did was take out a second mortgage on my home. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, that's a hard thing. Well, you mentioned climbing cell towers. Yes. And I remember you telling me about climbing up the cell tower and you, there was a bunch of hornets all over the place. And it, and it sounds like. Yeah. So that's a good example of a hard thing. So I've actually done it three times to my memory. The first time was um, a uh, 400 foot tower in the woods of Virginia. And I was standing at the bottom of the tower and I looked up and there was a swarm of hornets. Well, I had a job to do. I had a client. <laughs> the client was paying me to complete a task and was I willing to do that hard thing to make my company successful and I was so I started climbing as I climbed through the hornets they didn't bother me they flew around me they landed on me this and that and the other and it was frightening because when you're at 100 feet if one stings you or something happens you have nowhere to go but I did it I completed the work which was mapping the tower I came down and then the second time that happened I was I won't say I was comfortable but I was more comfortable because I understood that they probably would mess with me and they didn't and the third time was actually kind of a lesson in leadership the third time was uh by the by the time the third time i climbed through a swarm of hornets i had about 300 employees at my company and one of my employees came back and said he couldn't map this water tower because it's full of hornets and i said well yeah you can as long as you're nowhere near their nest which he wasn't you can climb through they won't mess with you he didn't believe me so i told him <laughs> come back 
Tomorrow morning, be here first thing. You and I will go climbing together. So we drove to the water tower, which was in a small town in rural North Carolina, and our 110-foot tower looked up, and there were the hornets. And so I went first. I told him to follow me, and he followed me right through the hornets. They didn't mess with us, so there you go. So I guess, you know, the other thing I'm learning from this is that it's not just about doing the hard thing, but if we repeatedly expose ourselves to difficult things, you can build in a lot of comfortability, familiarity, um, and get really good at it and help other people get through those things. Yeah, and climbing is a good metaphor. Climbing towers is a good metaphor for that because I frequently have people who will say, well, I could never do that. I'm scared of heights. Well, so was I. And in fact, I still am. But it's just like anything else. The more you do it, the more you get used to it. The more comfortable you get with it, the better you get at it. Just like every hard thing, just like every stressful thing, stretch yourself a little bit and then a little bit more and a little bit more and so on. So let me ask you a question, and you, you may not be willing to answer it, but I know in our discussions that you've related a lot of your business success to what you've gone through in your personal life. My sense is when you got cancer, it, it caused additional looking back on your life and how you've lived. Is there an example maybe from childhood or your early years where this winning formula began to appear or where you used it? or something, just so our listeners can relate to how they might see it in personal life? Uh, there are a lot of examples. In fact, you may have to rein me in a little bit. I have so many <laughs> examples um, of that type of thing. I guess I'll just start with one. Just give us the one that's most moving or most, it's an experience while maybe difficult, painful, you would never give up because it's what cemented or caused that big leap in your thoughts and your feelings. Well, so I played football. Uh, for eight years, I added it up. It was about 550 practices, about 55 games, uh, on through my senior year in high school. Uh, even walked on state's team. That's a whole other story in and of itself. But by the way, I didn't stay on the team. But playing football, especially in my early years, I was really, really bony, extremely skinny. In the 10th grade, I weighed 118 pounds. And I was also very introverted. I was a bookish type person. Uh, wore glasses, you know, the whole nine yards. So I was kind of a target for bullies. Sounds like you belonged in the library from appearance more than on a football field. Yes, from appearance I did. And uh, in fact, when I see uh, teenage boys now who are in the 118, 120-pound range, I actually had the inside same reaction the bullies had toward me. I think, well, there's no way that got me. <laughs> There's no way. So I kind of, you know, I kind of get it. But nevertheless, uh, when I was in eighth grade, I was standing off to myself and there was a group of four guys and uh, they were discussing the following year, ninth grade, which would have been our first year playing junior high football. And it was kind of a big deal to eighth grade boys and they were uh, going on and on with each other about playing junior high football. They were discussing uh, something the junior high coach does in the ninth grade, which is have each ninth grader his last day of practice pick someone that he wants to hit. <laughs> and he gets a running start at that person and gets to hit him. And that person just has to stand there and, and take the hit or deliver the hit, whatever, whatever he can do. But the ninth grader, uh, who in junior high is the oldest grade at that time, um, gets to choose someone. So anyway, these all these eighth grade boys, they were talking about the following year and who they were this and that and the other. And uh, one of them says, and I still remember his name, uh, one of them says, uh, and I'm standing there by myself, he says, I'm going to pick Pete Jernigan. And they all started laughing and because to them it was a complete joke to pick me for that because they were So how did you respond to that? What was your reaction internally externally? So I immediately, that's the time in my life when I remember the, the switch flipping. 
that's when I decided that I was going to win. And I immediately remember thinking in that instant, we'll see if you pick me. And um, that was it. That's when the switch flipped. And just to complete the story, the Reader's Digest version, the following year, we all did play junior high football as ninth graders. And at the end of the year, I won team MVP. And not one of those boys chose me. Wow. For that, I had developed a reputation as a vicious hitter, and I was. I was a headhunter. I'd hit, <laughs> I'd hit anybody, anywhere, anytime, any place, and that at about 120 pounds. That's it. And that sort of formed the way I approach problems and issues and challenges for the remainder of my life. But it also through cancer. But it also tells me that it's more about the heart of somebody than the physical appearance than all the crap that we talk about that's visible on the outside. It was the heart, the strength, the perseverance, the intensity you had to truly become successful. Um, I think a Muggsy Bogue was playing basketball. This right. tiny little guy, very successful. It's so I like that question because it prompts me to talk about something that's near and dear to my heart and that's underestimating people. Okay. From that experience, I learned never underestimate anybody. And that doesn't mean I'm going to tolerate unproduction or tolerate apathy. It doesn't mean that at all. It means I go into it assuming the person is highly competent, assuming the person is a winner. And so, for example, when I... So that's high expectations, basically, right? Or is that different? It's it's different. I just don't like to underestimate people. I'll give you an example. Uh, when I was running my company, up until about 200 employees, I took every phone call. And uh, the 300 employees, I couldn't do it anymore. It was just too much to take every phone call. I don't mean every call into the building. I mean, if somebody called the receptionist and asked for me, I just took the call. Mm-hmm. It didn't matter who it was. It could be a salesman. It could be a client. It could be somebody on a job. It could be a... And what was your purpose in that at the moment? Because I didn't want to underestimate any human being. Beautiful. I went into it assuming that whoever was calling me had potential, had virtue, and had drive. So you taking all those phone calls, did that actually produce a result on the other end of those? Yes. Again, I own an engineering firm. So the majority of our employees had to be structural engineers or some sort of civil engineer, mechanical engineers, and so on and so forth. But we did have plenty of employees who did not have engineering degrees. And again, I never underestimated anyone. So I, for example, I've hired a couple of guys out of the gym. I hired one guy just because he was incredible customer service and I was so impressed with him. I've hired somebody at the drive through at Wendy's. And of course, I've done the standard things. I've hired lots of engineers, lots of people with job fairs, read through lots of resumes. I merely wanted to make the point that just because somebody is not doing the traditional structural engineering job, so on and so forth, I just I just went going to everybody assuming the best out of them. Well, but I also, the other thing I'm hearing from you, with a lot of current clients, they rely on traditional methods to hire people, the best ones, and listening to you, is you were always looking for good people everywhere you went. And to me, that's a very different attitude, focus, a much broader scope of view, and probably did give you a huge advantage of bringing in better people for that reason. Well, I think so. But uh, one, uh, another unique thing about my company, which is one of the reasons I want to write the book, is we have 300 employees. We didn't poach employees. We hired the vast majority of those people either while they were in college or straight out of college. So, wow. so I basically like to say... I hired them as babies and raised them. I raised them, I nurtured them, so on and so forth. In fact, I've had 
several employees leave the company and they've never been anywhere else. So they assumed all companies ran like mine, which was hyper-focused on production. And they would leave and go somewhere else and be really surprised how unfocused other companies were on production because they had never experienced anything else. But as far as not underestimating anybody, I hired lots and lots of people who didn't make the cut. What do you think your hit rate was? If this was a batting average for every 100 people you hired, how many would you end up keeping just rough numbers? So I actually have a good number because at some point uh, while I was running the company, I asked my office manager to give me the total number <laughs> of people who had ever received a paycheck from my company. Are you willing to disclose this? I'll tell you because it's very interesting. On the surface, it makes me look bad, but I don't care. Of the 300 employees we had, that we settled on 300 at the time I sold it to the private equity. But to get to those 300, there had been 1,500 different individuals who had received at least one paycheck or more from my company over 17 years. So you can see just from that number, I pretty much hired anybody and everybody, but they had to prove themselves. And you can see the hit rate's pretty low, which is reasonable. I mean, if you check with any statistician or economist or psychologist, you'll see that, you know, it's what, 1% to 10% of the people produce 80% of the thing that's being produced. And that's across all walks of life. And it's no different in business. Um, well, plus, too, until you get somebody in for it, you don't know if it's their fit, a match to your culture. And part of me wonders if this leads into another one of the principles you talk about, which is leadership, where you channel people in to a win. So I don't know if you want to take that kind of into that next piece that I've heard you talk so well about. Yeah, my definition of leadership is channeling people. But into a win, I think I hear you Into say. a win, but it, it, a bad leadership. Is that like focus? Channeling focus? Focus is the technique to okay. get in there. Just to differentiate, obviously, bad leadership will channel somebody into a bad result. The world example would be Hitler. That's, there you go. There's leadership, there's bad leadership. Good leadership channels people into a good result. Well, so that's what I would, that's basically what I would do. I would hire people, set them up for success, set them up a culture where they could succeed. And in that way, I was channeling them to a positive result. Um, I would set up win-win scenarios with people. I would give them percentage of profit um, and I would give them a tremendous amount of autonomy. Uh, I ran my company laissez-faire. I was hands-off. I generally did not get involved unless things got bad and uh, needed me to get involved. But if things were going fine, I generally did not get involved. Um, I hired good people. I hired people. If I found out they were productive people, I would keep them and I'd turn loose. If I found out they were unproductive and I would not keep them, I would send them away. Is this related to Thirsty Horses? I know we've talked a lot about Thirsty Horses before. It seems a little bit related, perhaps, to the internal motivation. Yeah, so this is one of my favorite analogies. The riddle, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't let make him drink. The solution to that riddle is to find a thirsty horse. Because I believe that riddle, I completely believe it. You cannot force a horse to drink the water if he doesn't want to drink it. But the answer is to find a thirsty horse then lead him to the water, then he'll drink it on his own. So from that riddle and from my solution to the riddle, I started using the term thirsty horses and then I shortened it to horses. So actually, um, the guys who work for me, I call them my horses because they were thirsty horses, else they wouldn't have survived working for me. So they were part of the 300 that came from the 1500 that I don't came from 10,000 people. You know? Right, right. Now, let me 
let me be clear. If you have 300 employees, all 300 of those are not going to be hyper-driven. It's not realistic. It's not possible. Do you want them hyper-driven? No, I don't. Why? I do not. Because you need leaders and you need followers and you need you need leaders to channel people and you need people to produce the things that need that clients pay us to produce. And basically, my thirsty horses, I needed leaders. I needed leaders who were very thirsty, very driven, very motivated. And the tier below that group might be a little less thirsty nevertheless still driven and then there would be a tier below them and so forth now there was a limit uh within my company i would not tolerate that from okay. anybody if if how do you define apathy how would i see that feel that where, where i feel I, like i need to deal with it as a leader my leadership the in my for me the most important thing i look for in any human being is that they care the thing i absolutely cannot tolerate is apathy because you can't do anything how do i know somebody cares though see or feel how I measure that if you will yeah so that's a very interesting question and it was one of my problems with when I sold controlling interest to the private equity group based on my childhood I believe I developed in in practice straight up practice when you go through 1500 people and you settle on 300 and every single decision you make has a direct personal account to your personal checking account. In other words, when you own your own business, when you found your own business, when you start your own business, when you create, when you run your own business, every single decision that you make has a direct personal consequence to your personal checking account. Well, that's a very short feedback loop. Okay. So for example, you can imagine the CEO of a... How does this relate to care though? I think about the care. Well, so what, so I guess, yeah, so what I'm saying is I developed a lot of practice hiring people and determining if they cared. And here's one of the things that I found I could do. When somebody walked into my, my office, I could tell by the way they walked whether or not they cared. You can see it if they're dragging their feet, if their toes are kind of lazy, if they're kind of slouching a little bit, or if they come in with intensity. If they look at you with intensity, you can kind of see how they move. I'll give you an example. I had lunch with a guy. Uh, he, he had his own company, very, very successful company. And um, I met with him one time just to discuss with him. He was about to sell a private equity, and I wanted to talk to him about it before he did. And while we were having lunch, the guy was sitting there eating wings like an animal. <laughs> and, and, yeah. I, and I could tell just from watching him eat. He, I already knew he was successful, but I could see it. I could see by his intensity, his drive, the energy level coming from his nervous system. I could tell that guy really, really, really cared, which is why he runs such a successful company. Where with my employees and my associates and so on, I kind of developed intuitive sense of that. Um, now, that doesn't mean I made my final decision on somebody's gate. I did not. It was just something that I filed away. I made my final decision simply by hiring. I almost never, ever refused to hire anybody for any reason because, again, I don't want to underestimate anyone for any reason. Maybe they walk in and they were nervous about the interview and haven't slept all night. Maybe that's why they don't have the energy. I don't know that. So I will know their energy level, but I'll go ahead and hire them. But then I'll note it. And then once they get in the company, I can obviously I can see if they're producing, if they're driven, uh, if they're standing around the water cooler talking or if they're anxious to get to the desk and start cranking out work. The single if I can just tell anybody interested in starting a business, if I was forced to tell them one thing, this is it. Produce 
the thing you're getting paid to produce. That is the single most important thing you can do to have a successful business. And why do you say that? Because to me, that seems obvious. And I think I know what you're going to say, but I'm curious. Why are you saying that? It seems obvious. Yeah, I know. It's, it's one of those things that, that intuitively everybody believes it, but it's actually hard to do. Why? Because human beings are naturally wired to expend the least amount of energy they can expend to get through the day. And human beings are naturally wired for the next 30 minutes or the next three hours. They're not wired for the next three years, much less the next three decades. So they need to be looking at three years, three decades. Oh, absolutely. They need to be focused on what the hard thing is, not the easy thing. I live by the axiom that you sacrifice the present for the future. You don't sacrifice the future for the present. That sums up why I was able to sell a $55 million company that has zero debt on all its computers, on all its furniture, all its vehicles, all its equipment, all of, uh, most of its offices. There are a couple we leased. We had offices all over the country, so there was a couple we leased. But because from day one, I was planning for the future, planning for the future. I'll note that on the day I sold that company, we had $1.5 million in the checking account because I ran that company all cash. So we would get our invoices in the door, deposit them immediately every single day. Didn't wait. They didn't win in a quote unquote. They didn't go in a quote unquote lockbox. They got deposited every day. They got posted every day, reported every day. The money was in the checking account. I paid all my bills, all my debts. I paid all my vendors, all my suppliers, all my utilities. I paid all my employees' mileage, expense reimbursements, paid their paychecks, of course, and this and that and the other. Then whatever was left over by the time I sold the company, been 17 years, I would reserve $1.5 million in the checking account to pay next month's bills. So you always had a cushion. I always had a one-month cushion. And at the time, after 17 years, it was $1.5 million. But that's only because I had practiced delayed gratification. When I founded that company in 97, that cushion was $500. <laughs> Very different world now. Yeah. And then six months later, the cushion was you know, a thousand, and then it was five thousand, and then it was ten thousand, and it was fifty thousand, and then so on and so forth. So by the time I got to seventeen years, the cushion was one point five million. But even when the company was brand new and it was just me and my wife, and it, it, I still I kept the cushion. It was only five hundred and a thousand. So relating back to kind of lifting three hundred pounds, you start smaller, work your way towards it. You kept improving, increasing your financial goals and cushions and everything along the way. It sounds like. Yeah. Well, back to my principle of being willing to do the hard. Hard thing is, when I started the company, I took out a $15,000 second mortgage in my house, and I spent that on climbing gear, uh, inspections, equipment, a computer, structural analysis, software, and so on. So, and, and I went to work, made cold calls, worked like an animal, and in three months, I managed to make $15,000. So now, I've got 15, this is 97, so $15,000 was real money in 1997. So I have this $15,000. And I have two choices. I can pay off that second mortgage right now and still not have anything for myself. Or I can pay off part of the second mortgage and buy something for myself. Or I can not pay off the second mortgage at all, spend $15,000 on something else, anything. I mean, a car, whatever. So anyway, I chose to sacrifice the present for the benefit of the future. And I immediately took the 15000 to the bank and paid off that second mortgage. And then the company was debt free. I mean, after three months, we're already debt free. 
That's impressive. Well, that's, that probably gave you peace of mind. Uh, it gave me peace of mind, but it gives me something even better. It gives me operational control of my company and my money. I could spend my money and operate my company how I wanted without having to get permission from bankers or asking bankers for this or that and the other. I could just do it, and it made me my decisions. I'm a very decisive person, and I would make decisions so fast to make it. And I, because I didn't have to consult anyone, I was debt free. Had cash at the time; I didn't have much, but uh, you know, I, I eventually accrued it. Um, there's an example. Once our company company got big and prosperous, we made a mistake on a tower. And the mistake was a $300,000 mistake. Well, I didn't have to go to a bank. I didn't have to go to a lawyer. I didn't have to go to an insurance agent. I had the cash in the checking account. So what did you do? I paid the $300,000 to fix the mistake and make my client happy. That's great. And and we did just that. We fixed the mistake. We made the client happy. And we did it so fast, it'd make your head spin. And even though we made a big mistake, that client was happy as a clam. And probably with you forever. They were, they're still with the company to this day. Wow. We're getting near the end of the uh, interview, and I just kind of ask you, as we were corresponding about this podcast, you mentioned the magic elf. Yes. That, that seems the farthest removed from business and personal life, but maybe not. I love that analogy. So this is something I came up with. The magic elf is when the number one most important thing you do to have a successful business is complete the thing you are getting paid to complete. What that means is you don't sit in conferences. You don't have meetings, you're not on the phone, you're not at work, you're not eating lunch, you're not playing golf, you're not this and that. You're doing the thing you're getting paid to do. Number two is do it with urgency. You do the thing, you do it with urgency. If you combine doing the thing with doing it with hyper urgency, you get what I call a magic elf. Your client calls you, gives you a job, and bam, like a magic elf is done. And I'll give you my personal example I like to use. Back in about, I think it was about 1999, I was in my uh, truck down in South Carolina climbing a tower, and I had finished the work, and I was on Highway 95 heading north back home. Well, so it was dusk, and I got a call on the cell phone from a gentleman uh, named Dave. He worked for American Tower Corporation, uh, which I think is one of the first or second largest tower owners on the planet, or close to it, top five, I'm sure. So anyway, Dave says, I got your name from so-and-so of Harbury Wireless. I need a tower inspected right now. How quick can you get it done? I said, I'll do it right now. So where is it? He says, in Bluffton, South Carolina. I made a U-turn. It's dark. <laughs> I made a U-turn. I went to the tower in the middle of a swamp in the low country of South Carolina. Pitch dark, middle of the woods. Couldn't see anything. Felt my way to the tower site. Opened the gate. Got on the tower. If there's anybody listening to me in those towers, it's a long model 80. Still remember it. Got on it, pitch dark, put on a miner's helmet, climbed the tower, measured it by feel, and I went up to one of the beacons at 200 feet. And every time that red beacon flashed, I could see 20 feet above me and 20 feet below me. So I had a very good idea of what I had there. So anyway, I measured up the tower, got everything done, climbed back down, got back in the truck, headed back to my home in Raleigh. I got to my home, you know, in the middle of the morning. I walked inside, went in the kitchen, and I faxed the field notes to the client. When he arrived at his office that morning, that task that he told me to do was in his fax machine. And it wasn't even 12 hours from when he told me to do it. That's the magic elf. As far as that client knew, I was a magic elf. He told me to do something, bam, it's done. I kept that client and that company for the rest of my career. And my company now still has them. 
I tell you, that is a heck of a success story, not just individually, but as a business branding your reputation and your desire to not just achieve with people, but achieve for customers, suppliers, et cetera. That's very exciting. So you've got this book coming out in short order. What, what do you want people, if you had to pick one or two things when they read this book, what do you think they'll get out of it? I'm going to be brutally transparent here. The story I told you when those four 13-year-old punks were ridiculing me while I was standing alone on the football field, a switch flipped in me to prove to them that they were wrong about me, to prove to them that they shouldn't underestimate me. So after building this company, when I tell these stories, and of course, I haven't told a fraction of them here on this podcast, but when I tell the stories of the financial success of the company, which was absolutely phenomenal, I mean, we literally we were making millions and millions of cash every year. Um, I'll give you one example. In the 17 years that I owned that company, I paid cash dividends every single quarter without exception, every quarter. And mostly every month. And that was cash dividends after everybody else had been paid and after the reserve I mentioned had been left in the account. The other thing that's phenomenal, I've got so many of these, I'd love to tell them at the time. So when they read the book, they'll hear kind of when they read the book, they're gonna read all these stories. When I tell these stories, people just they don't believe me. When I tell them that I collected a hundred percent of all my invoices, and that's the truth. I collected all of my invoices and I got some fantastic uh, collection stories. They just simply don't believe it. So I want it in writing. And that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm putting it in writing. Still doesn't mean they necessarily will believe me, but at least I'll have it in writing. I'll have it out there. So what is, what will I get as a reader from that? I think what you're going to get is you're going to see a different way to run a business. I think you're going to see that a business can be run without debt. It can be run with real cash wealth that you can take to the grocery store and buy a loaf of bread with. In other words, you don't have to load businesses up with all kinds of debt and all kinds of various unproductive executive types, and this and that and the other. You can run a business that starts from nothing and achieves tens of millions of dollars in real cash wealth. And you can do that without debt and you don't have to accept not getting paid. And what about personally? If I'm reading the book, I get the business piece you're telling me, but what will I get personally out of this? What will individuals get? I want individuals to see that we haven't touched on a lot of the things in my life. We touched on the cancer and so on, but there's a lot of things I've overcome. And I want people who have overcome some of the things I have, who can identify with those things. I want them to see a way out. I also want people to see... And if you don't mind, I mean, you had a bit of a rough childhood. Yeah. You've been through cancer. Yeah. You've also built a, what I consider, wonderful family, wife, two daughters. So, I mean, you've achieved a lot personally in overcoming things and building what looks to be a very rich wealth of personal life. So it sounds like your stories will give people ideas, clues, principles, how to do that. Is that accurate? Yeah, yeah, that's accurate. Um, the, <clears throat> we didn't touch on the cancer, but even the cancer, uh, I had prostate cancer, and the method I chose to, to solve that problem was a method most people don't choose. But the process I went through to do that, I'm going to write a chapter in the book. It's the same process I used for winning. It's the same process I used for building my debt-free, all-cash engineering firm. It's the same process I used for creating the tower inspection process that the entire telecom industry uses to this day. And I want people to read the process, and the process applies to beating cancer. It applies to a 
having a good marriage, it applies to having a great company. Uh, it applies to disrupting an entire industry with a tower inspection system. So let me ask you this. It's, you're very successful in many aspects. Right now, you actually have grown and are growing several different businesses. And as you're doing this, I, I don't know if you're open to it, but if somebody wanted to email you with a question or some thoughts or related to the book or business, would you be open to that? Yes, you can email me at PeteJarnigan at iCloud.com. I love discussing my businesses. I love discussing tower engineering professionals. I love discussing winning. I love discussing doing the hard thing, overcoming difficulties, all those kinds of things. I've developed sort of a lot of personal principles and processes. But, but I assume you're only going to take phone calls from thirsty horses, A players that have intensity and passion. No, no, Nobody with apathy, right? Well, I'll take the people with apathy because a lot of them don't realize they're apathetic. <laughs> so I start describing the hard thing to them. And then they realize, oh, no, I'm not willing to do that. So this is Don Hadley with Building a Leadership Culture Podcast. We've had Pete Jernigan on here. I highly recommend you buy the book. I've had the opportunity to read a large part of it, and it's probably one of the most unique books or one of the most unique people I know. Uh, if you're willing to take on the challenge of finding out if you're apathetic or not and willing to email and chat with him, I would highly recommend it because he is very direct and communication. For myself, I've written a couple books. We do these podcasts. If anybody has questions on business, we have a business health assessment you could use with your team and would highly recommend uh, getting in touch with me at dhadley at appliedvisionworks.com or uh, feel free to call me at 919-368-9008. And thank you for listening again. You've been listening to the Building a Leadership Culture podcast, hosted by Don Hadley, owner and president of Applied Vision Works. Questions, concerns? Please email Craig Chase at cchase at appliedvisionworks.com or call 800-786-4332. This has been an exclusive presentation of 680 WPTF and Applied Vision Works.